Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. This week began with Labor Day. But in a wicked contradiction, Monday was also the day that 7.5 million workers lost their COVID-era expanded federal unemployment benefits. President Joe Biden declined to extend the benefits before they expired. And to be clear, we are still very much in the COVID era. Washington lawmakers have been battling over these benefits since the earliest days of the pandemic. Democrats initially argued that the unprecedented economic crisis precipitated by the pandemic required a more robust economic safety net. And most of those Democrats championed the expanded benefits from the outset. But as the pandemic moved into its second year, Republicans and some Democrats have sought to terminate those benefits, claiming that the additional resources were deterring Americans from returning to work or seeking new jobs. Indeed, several Republican-led states ended the expanded benefits early, in some cases, months before the Labor Day expiration. Here's Texas Governor Greg Abbott on CNBC back in May. We have the demand for the workforce where people can get back to work. The numbers are safe enough in our state for people to get back to work. It is time for America to get back to work. And here's Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson speaking on Fox News in June. It immediately sent a signal to workers out there that you're going to, you need to return to work. If you need training, we can provide training to you. If you need child care assistance, we're going to have that assistance available to you. But lately, it seems the battle's over. A bipartisan consensus has emerged, and a majority of lawmakers from both parties seem pretty disinterested in maintaining these expanded unemployment benefits. In fact, their expiration this week was met with silence across the partisan divide. Here's Labor Secretary Marty Walsh on the Today Show this past Monday, discussing how the Biden administration is now passing the buck to the states. Today was the day that the $300 extension will end. We've allowed governors, if they need to, to look at using rescue plan money to extend the unemployment benefit in their state if they need to. So where does this leave the millions of Americans who relied on these benefits? For more on this, I spoke with Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post, and Annalise Goger, fellows at Brookings Metro at the Brookings Institution. And I started by asking Annalise to clarify the specific unemployment benefits that ended. In normal times, we have a largely state-run unemployment system, and what many people call regular unemployment insurance. But during the pandemic, the Congress had to step in because most of the workers impacted by the pandemic were not eligible for that regular unemployment insurance for various reasons. And so they had to create actually three whole new programs in the middle of the crisis. And it's those emergency programs that expired on Labor Day. And so that includes one program to cover workers like gig workers, um, self-employed, people who normally would categorically not qualify Um, including people who were part-time or didn't earn enough. And then another category was extended benefits. So if if you're a long-term unemployed uh, due to the economy, then they were offering extended benefits up to 53 weeks. And normally it ends at 26 in most states. Um, And then the third is uh, the unemployment supplement, which was the most controversial, uh, which initially was around $600 and has uh, more recently been uh, reduced to around $300. So as of Labor Day, 
all three of those things go away. So what the only thing left is the regular state unemployment insurance, which um, actually covers a pretty small share of people's uh, previous income, although it varies from state to state. It can be low, as low as, you know, uh, just around $100 to $200 a week uh, and then to a high of around four or 500 a week. So that's very concerning because this these emergency programs did a lot to um, address a lot of the structural inequities and outdated nature of the safety net. Heather, maybe you can pick up there where um, Annalise just left off about sort of what these benefits did. You know, obviously they were in place for long enough for us to have at least some understanding of what their impact was. Well, there was a huge impact and we just saw some new data come out in the last few days that uh, shows us that a big reason that hunger did not spike as high as everyone was really concerned about during 2020, during the worst of the crisis, is because of the government stepping in and giving more generous unemployment aid and um, those three stimulus checks that went out. So, you know, it literally was keeping people's lights on and keeping people fed uh, during this crisis. And it's also interesting, we had a little bit of a test case this summer, 22 states uh, led mainly by Republican governors, did do away early with those benefits. So they essentially did what happened nationwide on Labor Day uh, in June or July. And the early evidence from those states that rolled back early is pretty telling. There was no big increase in those states in employment. So these arguments that these more generous unemployment benefits were keeping people from returning to jobs does not seem to be the case, at least right away. Um, But at the same time, uh, some data indicates that hunger rose in those states as unemployment benefits went away and and hardship pain bills went up again. And interestingly, a lot of those state economies had a little bit of of a ding because that money obviously is so critically needed right now and people spend it right away. They spend it on groceries, they spend it on rent, they spend it on fixing their car. And so when all of that money suddenly ends overnight, uh, we expect to see a little bit of a hit on the economy. Uh, it's such an interesting um, point, right, that um, in an economy that is struggling in the ways that, that ours has in the context of the pandemic, that giving um, consumers money to consume their, you know, their basic needs also stimulates the economy. Uh, Annalise, I'm wondering if you can dig in a little bit here where um, on this assumption that Heather was, you know, naming for us that um, th- that we've heard repeated a lot uh, in recent months, that the reason that there are so many job openings, that there's kind of a tight labor market is because of these overly generous unemployment benefits that are keeping people from going back to work. Right. And this, you know, frankly, is an old trope where you're you're blaming the, the lazy worker for the state of the economy. And it's really clear to me that if you look at all the evidence, there have been several studies so far. And although there are small micro level changes, like in the states that took those away early out of nine workers, one may have been employed by the end of the month. The other eight would still be unemployed. And so I think partly what's going on here is that, you know, first of all, the pandemic is at a much greater scale of unemployment than previous recessions. And so on Labor Day, around seven and a half million workers were estimated to have lost benefits. And in previous recessions, it was in the range of one to two million. Um, Another issue, though, is clearly 
that the pandemic is creating all kinds of complexities for people in their decisions about where to go to work and and how to navigate this economy because their lives are more unstable. They may have children at home and not have childcare. They may have health issues or a family member who has health issues. And so I just think that most workers are thinking about a much wider range of things than maybe they used to pre-pandemic. For example, if a job doesn't have health insurance or sick leave, that could be a much bigger deal right now for a worker. And so the scale combined with the complexity makes this, uh, this entire labor market extremely tumultuous and it can take a really long time, even in a normal economy, for someone to find another job and also for an employer to find a good candidate for a job. And so we see a lot of churn and uncertainty. I would be really hesitant to just say, well, it's workers that are being lazy (laughs) because there's really not much evidence that that's true. And there's a lot more evidence that, as Heather was saying earlier, that these benefits actually kept them the economy afloat. So I think we need to start thinking about what would have been the cost if we had allowed the economy to tank and allowed all those impacts to happen, both at the individual or family level, but even at the society level of just the sort of downward spiral that can happen when you don't use economic stabilizers like unemployment insurance. We're coming back around in some ways, not only to the individual household, but also to the effect on the economy writ large. Can you just kind of, you know, help give us a little bit of a, a temperature check? Where is the economy right now? Um, what does job creation look like? And and maybe um, also kind of as Annalise was hinting at here, not only jobs, but jobs of a particular kind, right? Those that might have things like sick leave and health insurance. It's such a confusing time for the economy. Uh, on the one hand, if you look at the normal metrics that we like to economists like to look at, uh, it things look pretty good. You know, we're having some of the strongest economic growth that we've had since the early 1980s. Uh, we're having uh, the economy has a record number of job openings. We just got data this week that showed nearly 11 million job openings in July. Something we've just never seen before. So when you look at that, you think, oh, this economy is humming. Things have really bounced back. About 75% of the jobs lost during the pandemic have come back. But on the flip side, you also see that this is an economy that still has 8.4 million unemployed Americans, which is a really high number. And uh, when you dig into who those people are, you see uh, that still there's a very high struggle to get jobs back for particularly Black women and Hispanic women and Americans who do not have college degrees. So this is an economy that looks like it's firing, but it's not working for everyone. And I will point out that the most read article on the Washington Post uh, over the Labor Day weekend was actually a piece with the headline of why America has 8.4 million unemployed people and over 10 million job openings. A couple of points, some of which Annalise was just making about why this is happening. Why can't those unemployed people just take you know, these <laughs> jobs? I would point out three quick things. Number one, uh, there's obviously a pandemic still going on. Number two is this mismatch. I explain it to people like this. Yes, there's a ton of job openings, but they are not necessarily in the locations or the mm-hmm. industries 
is where the unemployed are. You know, we've seen this boom in suburbs lately, particularly wealthy suburbs that people sort of flock to during the pandemic. And if you go to the malls in those areas, it looks like there is no pandemic right now. You know, but that's not where a lot of workers, particularly struggling workers, live near those places. And there's not usually good public transit to get there. The final one is about 40% of the unemployed, so over 3 million of the unemployed have been unemployed for more than six months, what we call long-term unemployed. And we know from history that it's hard for people who have those kind of gaps on their resume, even though most people understand it's because of the pandemic, it's hard for those people to find a job right away. I had written about a warehouse worker with forklift driver certification, one of those licenses everybody thinks is so in demand right now. And it took him months um, to find find a new job, even with a qualification like that. And there was a really interesting Harvard Business School study that just came out in the last few days that found that um, all, a lot of big companies are using robots or using artificial intelligence that seems sound so sophisticated to scan all these resumes. But what's happening is they're actually excluding a lot of people, particularly people who haven't been working in the last few months, or I hate to say it, women who maybe took time off moms or dads to be home with kids so anytime there's a gap on a resume a lot of those robots are you know are kicking those resumes out so unemployed people are not able to get hired you know i think that um that sort of insight about you know you can't just match workers to jobs it's not you know it's not just a puzzle where you can move the pieces wherever you want Annalise, maybe you can also pick up on this question, particularly of women who are unemployed. We, we, I, I will think I'll never forget the the headline at one point um, in, in a jobs report during the pandemic that every single job that had been lost during that period um, was lost by um, by a woman worker. Um, is this going to potentially be a long-term um, situation for women who may find it difficult to ever return to um, to the workforce um, on the back end of, of the pandemic, if we could ever get to the back end of the pandemic? The problem is that when you lose a job, oftentimes it's, it's very destabilizing and in some cases even traumatizing, and it can affect someone's self-confidence and, you know, basically add stress in very several domains of their life. And so this is a really difficult moment to navigate for a lot of job seekers. And when you're a woman in this pandemic economy with young children, for example, with childcare responsibilities or family care responsibilities, it only adds to the situation because right now, for example, with the Delta variant, you know, who knows if schools are going to close again, if there's an outbreak and it's, it's really difficult. You know, one thing to keep in mind is that the U.S. spends about a fifth of other industrialized countries on career services and what's called worker readjustment programs. Um, so this is, you know, the ability to go into a job center and get some career counseling and some help saying, hey, I, I lost my job in the restaurant industry. I can't be exposing myself, you know, to those risks. Can you help me transition to an office job or to something where I'm not interacting with people because I have diabetes or, or whatever. We don't make those services free and widely available. Um, you have to qualify for, for that one-on-one uh, more intensive service. And I think 
Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence from many evaluations that those types of services are actually the most effective services we have in the workforce system. Um, you know, where we don't see a lot of effectiveness is, is short-term trainings, like the certificates you mentioned. You know, many people think of our, our workforce system and policy as just a training thing. And what I like to tell people is, you know, for a lot of people, the inequality comes in in terms of ac access to information, you know. What jobs are even out there for me that would be good given my interests, my skills, my experience? How can I translate? If, if there's a lot of jobs in construction and infrastructure coming up with the new funding, assuming that goes through, like, why would we just assume that, that women from, you know, a hotel job might automatically fit in a construction job? You know, we have to find other occupations that would make sense for people. And there may be some women that want to go into construction. How can we support them in, an, in a very male-dominated space and make sure that they feel welcome and have access to what they need um, if, if they need to deal with unstable schedules and things like that? Making a career transition is happening more and more in the economy, but we, we have been decreasing funding for all the kinds of support that people need to get a job or make a career transition. And that's very concerning uh, given disruptions like COVID. But even before that, I hope moving forward, we think more about how to really support people to get a job because that should be the goal and it should be bipartisan. Heather, let's talk about that. <laughs> what should be bipartisan um, in the sense that one one of the ways that, that even these federal unemployment benefits came into being was the pressure caused by the initial outbreak of the pandemic but there seems to be a bit of kind of pandemic fatigue at this point, even as we look at, at, at you know, 1,500 deaths um, a day where we're looking at, you know, uh, Florida uh, with one of the country's worst Delta outbreaks reporting more deaths now a day than at any other point. You know, uh, states like Tennessee and South Carolina, you know, leading the country um, in cases per capita. Like, it's not just that we're still kind of in the pandemic. Like, the pandemic is still raging is there any kind of appetite, given that, um, to try to extend this kind of support that Annalise was talking about? There is no appetite. And I will mention that that's a bipartisan statement there. Uh, mm -hmm. It was kind of interesting. President Biden's team, when they were asked about unemployment insurance going away, sort of said, oh, well, the states have money from the stimulus package. If they want to use that to extend it, they can. So the classic, you know, point the finger at, at somebody else sort of mentality. And so, you know, there's just been there's you know, they haven't introduced bills to extend the unemployment insurance any further. And I think the key takeaway is what Annalise said at the top of our discussion, which is if we had a decent state unemployment system or what regular system outside of pandemic, it would be okay probably to take away or to phase out some of these additional benefits. But the fact that your Lyft or Uber driver can just be cut off overnight because they're a self-employed or a gig worker, as opposed to somebody who has the regular nine to five job that they would not get unemployment insurance. And, you know, that's where the U.S. safety net just has these gaping holes right now. The other thing I would point out that I think is kind of interesting to watch right now with all of this is to me, the key stat <laughs> to watch and in terms of is this economy fully recovered or, or pretty far along is 
what's happening with child care centers, you know, mm. right? It's interesting. If you look at the data in both July and August, child care employment went down. Workers are quitting. They're tired. They're burned out from this pandemic. Uh, and and uh, these are really low paid jobs, unfortunately, in many cases. And sometimes they don't even get health care benefits if they're working, taking care of children. And so at the moment, we are more than 10% down still in employment in the childcare sector. Many childcare centers are worried that they might have to close, and many have already closed their infant rooms or their toddler rooms because, of course, those require more staff. You have to have at least one staff or teacher per every four babies. And if there's not enough teachers, that's the first room you close. And so to me, you can just, you can see it that particularly moms, this is one of the key reasons why moms have struggled to get back into jobs right now. And it's really hampering the entire U.S. economy and is a real, uh, you know, flashing crisis, red light warning sign about we are not back. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Washington Post, and Annalise Gogar is a fellow at Brookings Metro at the Brookings Institution. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All this week, our guests and you have shared your recollections of the September 11th terrorist attacks with us. I was a kid in college. I was home for the summer, and I remember my father woke me up frantic, and we sat in front of the TV set and watched the second plane go into the second tower. Activist Valerie Kaur remembers the horror of watching the televised attacks that day, and she recalls her painful realization that this action likely would have personal consequences. My uncle, my father's brother, works a few blocks away from the World Trade Center, and so we were, you know, panicked and trying to call him, make sure that he was okay. He got out. But within minutes, really, I remember, you know, the towers kept falling on this endless loop, and then soon there was this image of Osama bin Laden, and I realized that our nation's new enemy looked like my family. Valerie's family of origin, her community, is sick American. Sikhism was founded in the 15th century on the Indian subcontinent, and the faith does not share a common history or geography with Islam. But these realities were irrelevant to those acting out of a rage-fueled Islamophobia in the months following 9-11. Within hours, there was news of hate violence erupting on city streets across the country against Muslim Americans and also against my community, Sikh Americans. Many of our men wear turbans as part of our faith, and so we were at the forefront of that violence. The alarming violence soon became even more personal for Valerie. Four days later, on September 15th, I got the phone call from Arizona that Bulbir Uncle had been killed. He was a family friend, a sick father who was standing in front of his gas station planting flowers when a man shot him five times in the back and called himself a patriot when arrested. Balber Singh Sodhi was the first person to be murdered in a hate crime following September 11th. Valerie has spent the years since his murder advocating for the Sikh American community and others targeted and impacted by hate. 
You know, for, for many Sikh and Muslim Americans, we were afraid of the next terrorist attack. And then we were afraid of walking out of our home for fear that we would be killed or beaten or harmed by our own neighbors. And when I think about that kind of fear, it is, it is an ancient fear. Um, my grandfather sailed by steamship from India to America in 1913. So my family has lived and farmed in California for 100 years. And my grandfather and his generation of immigrants, they fought for equal rights alongside black leaders who made sure that we had equal protection under the law. And so we had this notion of linear progress, you know, that our grandparents sacrificed so that we would be more free. And and there were waves of hate before 9-11, you know, after the Iran hostage crisis. My grandfather used to be called Santa Claus, Santa Claus when riding around on his horse and buggy in, in our small farming town. But after the Iran hostage crisis, he was called the Ayatollah. After the, the first Persian Gulf War, there was a wave of hate against us. After the Oklahoma City bombing, where the perpetrator was white, there was a wave of hate. And yet, every time we thought of these outbursts of hate as aberrations, you know, in an otherwise like forward moving story. And so even after 9-11, Melissa, we called that ha- the hate that exploded across the country against people of color the backlash. We, we saw it when I was <laughs> traveling around the country filming these stories. We went from city to city, from home to home, sometimes when the blood was still fresh on the ground. And I still thought the documentary that we were making that ended up becoming our first film, Divided We Fall, I thought it was going to be this archive of history, this dark, regrettable chapter of U.S. history. 20 years later, that terror has not ended. We are five times more likely to be targets of hate than we were before 9-11. Hate violence never dipped down to the level it was at before 9-11. And now I'm, I'm not a college kid anymore. I'm a mother. And as I tie my, my son's long hair in, in a bun, in a Judah, and I send him to school, I have to reckon with the fact that he's growing up in a nation more dangerous for him than it was for me. So we've let go of that notion of linear progress. And instead, you know, I've looked to black and indigenous leaders for my hope, because if we take colonization and slavery as the true starting point for the history of the Americas, then what we have undergone the last 20 years is not an aberration. It is a continuation of what people of color have long had to fight, white supremacy on the soil. And what gives me hope is to see how Sikhs are now standing next to black people, indigenous people, Asian people, Latinx people in one voice saying, actually, we can lift our gaze to an America where we all might be free, where we all belong. And that's what's new. That's what's different 20 years later. Let's talk about that solidarity, because it seems to me that there must surely be at least some moment, particularly maybe in your like 20 year old self or in the communities, again, when you're driving around the country, when you're making that first documentary film, there must be some impulse by at least some folks to just say, hey, we are not Muslim. We are sick. Let me explain how sick is different. You know, here are the parts of the world um, from whence we tend to hail. Here are the parts of the world where Muslims tend to hail. Please leave us alone. We're not them. How do you resist that urge, and maybe not just you personally, but the community, to stoke Islamophobia in order to save one's own self? Mm. Well, there was that impulse in the very, very beginning 
there were bumper stickers that some members of our community printed that said, we are six, not Muslims. <laughs> but very quickly, our community realized that it actually didn't matter to the person who was aiming the gun at us, whether we were Sikh or Muslim. We fit the image of the perpetual foreigner, of the automatically suspect, potentially terrorist. It didn't matter to them what we called ourselves. The violence would explode anyway. And what I saw in interview after interview was how six resisted that initial impulse because they went back to their ancestors and said, well, our ancestors were known as warriors, as Santh Sapai, sage warriors. The warrior fights, the sage loves. It's a path of revolutionary love. We have stood up for other religious minorities in India for centuries, and so why should we throw another community under the bus on this soil? So that initial impulse was overridden by reaching back to the love ethic at the heart of our faith. Love can sound like a a kind of weak or anemic word and a weak and anemic response to the kind of violence that you're talking about. Um, why, why go to a love ethic? I'm with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm a lawyer. Every time I, I heard someone stand up on a stage and say love was the answer, I would roll my eyes. <laughs> love in the face of institutions that perpetuate injustice, what do you mean? And and honestly, Melissa, it was, it, was, it was my own existential crisis after my son was born, realizing that, that you know, with every film, with every lawsuit, with every campaign, I thought we were making the nation safer for the next generation. And then to, to reckon with the fact that, you know, we need more than sound government. We need more than just policy. What we need in America is a shift in culture and consciousness, a new way of being and seeing that leaves no one behind, a, a kind of revolution of the heart, that, that our malady is not just a political one or an economic one, it's a spiritual one, it's a cultural one. And, and, and what I saw, you know, every time I've seen people of color on the brink of despair, I've seen the love ethic show up as this muscular, robust force. Um, love is more than a rush of feeling. Love is sweet labor. It is fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving. And when communities in the face of oppression are able to show up with that kind of love to sustain longevity and courage in the face of ongoing oppression, it, it's, it's life-giving. I remember the last interview I did was when I first really learned this. I had traveled across the world to see the widow of Bulbir Singh Sodhi. And at this point, I, you know, people were telling us to go back to our country. I was starting to feel a kind of bitter despair spread through my chest. And when I found her in the village, she was dressed in white, the color of mourning. And I only, you know, I had this long list of questions. I could only set my questions aside and weep with her. And then I asked her, what would you tell the people of America? And I was expecting that despair, that reproach. And she said, tell them thank you. When I went to America for my husband's funeral, they came out in the thousands, Christian, Jew, Muslim. They did not know me, but they cared with me. They wept with me. They chose to love me. Thank them for their love. Melissa, that moment saved me, and it, it still saves me because, you know, Bulbir Singh Sodhi's name, it's not known to the nation now 20 years later. <laughs> 
his story is not known, even though it should be. And yet, in that small community, they told the story well, well enough for people to show up and, and weep. And it didn't stop the violence, but it did heal this widow's heart so that she could go on. And since then, the Sodi family and, and Rana, Bobir uncle's younger brother, has insisted on this, this love, <laughs> even reaching out to his brother's murderer a few years ago to forgive him and begin this process of reconciliation. He, he refused to create another us and them. He refused to let anyone outside of his circle of care. And I keep thinking if we could do that as a nation, wouldn't that be revolutionary? Indeed, we're now in a space where we, where we may need to do that as a nation. Not that we haven't, I guess, always been there. But I'm wondering about your thoughts um, as the final um, members of the U.S. military evacuated from Afghanistan. Both your thoughts about what you think may happen next, but also what might be possible, perhaps not in a linear way, but in that revolutionary love way, as, as you've written about. As I've been watching Afghanistan, I've been holding this question in my heart. You know, the future is dark. Is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? It is both. We have lost so much in the last 20 years. The gas station where Bulbir Sodi was killed is the second ground zero. It's the ground zero for all all of the people who have been killed and harmed by the way our nation responded to 9-11 and hate violence at home and state violence at home and in the wars on terror abroad. And we can see how that decision to divide the world into us versus them, to respond to aggression with enormous aggression, we can see looking at Gobble how that has failed. So yes, it, it, it is the darkness of the tomb. And yet, and then to sit with that grief and with that rage and with that trauma and to lift your gaze and to see what is emerging now that perhaps was not emerging before. What if this was the darkness of the womb? What if this was the first moment where America woke up to welcoming refugees? What if this was the moment where we learned from the lessons of two decades and chose to value human dignity above all, to not let fear hijack us anymore? What if... Our America is not dead, but a nation still waiting to be born. In birthing labor, progress is cyclical, not linear. It's a series of expansions and contractions. And so I don't know how many more turns to the cycle it's going to take before we birth an America where we are all safe and free. But I know that I want to show up to do my part in the labor. And the way that I have found longevity, strength, solidarity, dignity, and that is if I show up with love, a kind of revolutionary love. Say his name. Babir Singh Sodi. Um, is there a marker where he was killed? At the corner of the gas station at 80th and University in Mesa, Arizona, there is a plaque where he was killed. And every year, the family turns this gas station into a sacred space we sing our prayers as the sun sets and we say his name and we remember all who have been lost to hate. We'll be gathering again there on September 15th. And this time we're taking people with us. We'll be live streaming it and bringing a book of prayers and people can join us at 911hub.org. And at that second round zero, we'll have the courage to reckon with our past and taking Bobir Uncle's memory in our hearts 
to lift our gaze and reimagine the future. Valerie Kaur is a civil rights activist, author of See No Stranger, which was recently released in paperback, and the leader of the Revolutionary Love Project. Valerie, thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. The Golden State, a recall election that ends on Tuesday, will decide whether California Governor Gavin Newsom will stay in office or be removed. Recent polling suggests Newsom has the necessary support to keep his current gig. But the governor isn't letting down his guard just yet. It's September 14th, just a matter of days. You have the opportunity to determine the fate and future of this state, and I would argue impact the fate and future of the United States of America. This is a consequential election. I spoke with Libby Dinkman, senior politics reporter at KPCC in Southern California. California is one of 19 states that has a recall process for statewide elected officials. 12% of the people who voted in the last gubernatorial election had to sign a petition in order to qualify this effort for the ballot. And that's a relatively low number compared to most other states who have a recall. And once that qualified for the ballot, there was a ballot measure scheduled to go for a vote before the general electorate. And September 14th, Tuesday, is the day that voting closes here in California. On our ballots in California, we have two questions. The first is whether we want to remove Gavin Newsom, the current governor of California. And the second question is which of 46 candidates voters would like to choose to replace him. So that first question, Newsom has to clear 50% plus one in order to stay in office. And if he doesn't, then the winner of a plurality of votes on the second question will become the next governor of California. Wait, so first it's just, do you want Newsom out? Um, and then second, the next person uh, doesn't necessarily have to win a 50% plus one. That's right. It, it's a pretty interesting system because this is not a primary. There is no runoff. The winner of the second question on the ballot, if the recall is successful, could become governor with, say, 15 or 20 percent of the vote. There's no threshold required as long as you beat the other candidates on the ballot. And in this case, we see a individual candidate, Larry Elder, a conservative talk show host from Los Angeles, running away as the leader of the likely voters who would choose to replace Governor Newsom. But he's only polling at about a quarter of the average of, of, of likely voters. If the recall is successful, again, that's a big if, he would become governor with just a, a quarter of the electorate's support. However, Governor Newsom has been getting some good news lately. Polling on the recall versus retain the governor question has uh, really widened in his favor in recent weeks. And the last few polls I've seen show Newsom beating the recall for between 12 and 14 points. Of course, anyone will tell you polls are different than what actually happens on, on election day. And I'm wondering um, if there is a sense of the extent to which Democratic voters are really invested here versus the extent to which Republican voters are really invested in turning out. There's no question about a month ago and six weeks ago, Melissa, that Democrats were sweating. They were seeing the polls that likely voters 
on the Democratic side were not very interested in this race, whereas Republicans have been fired up for months to remove the governor. And so in a state where Republicans uh, are only about a quarter of registered voters, Democrats outnumber them about two to one, and no party preference voters, uh, independent voters, are almost equal to Republicans now in California. At one point, they surpassed Republicans. This was an exciting time for conservative voters, thinking that they might be able to you know, sneak in here. It's an electorate where they haven't been able to elect a Republican statewide official since 2006, since the governor uh, Schwarzenegger was reelected, himself a candidate who won through a recall process. At first, the enthusiasm gap was something the Newsom campaign was very concerned about. But then you saw Newsom turn on the tap of money, and he's been able to raise something uh, in the neighborhood of $70 million to defeat this recall versus on the pro-recall side, you know, more modest numbers, maybe between eight and 10 million for the top polling candidates on the GOP side. Just nothing in the neighborhood of what Newsom's been able to raise. And when the ad started going, every Internet video you pull up has a pre-roll ad practically in California uh, asking voters to vote no on the recall. And every sporting event you watch on television includes uh, an anti-recall ad. That money seems to have been paying off, as have some high profile endorsements from national Democratic uh, all-stars. Say more about the uh, Democratic all-stars who have shown up uh, for Governor Newsom. Well, it's a who's who of, you know, the top names in the Democratic Party. You had Bernie Sanders cutting an ad pretty early on for Governor Newsom, urging people to vote no on the recall. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren has come in person. She was in Los Angeles County recently rallying with Newsom. So was Amy Klobuchar. Um, Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, was in the Bay Area on Wednesday uh, at a rally supporting Newsom. And that's an interesting sight to see, (laughs) Melissa, because uh, Kamala Harris and Governor Newsom have been somewhat considered rivals from Bay Area political circles for many years. I mean, Governor Newsom has, of course, like many high profile governors, thought about his own run for president. And when uh, Vice President Harris became the vice president, that seemed to maybe close a door for him in the near future. Um, These two appearing together on a stage united to voice their support for no on the recall. That was an interesting sight for many political reporters. And then you have uh, former President Barack Obama uh, cutting an ad as well for Newsom. And now President Biden's team has confirmed that the president will be in Long Beach in the Los Angeles area on Monday to rally supporters a day before voting closes on this recall. There is no doubt politics makes very odd bedfellows. Um, But it's also true that this governor has been quite tested. He's had to manage, obviously, coronavirus um, in the state and has been pretty aggressive um, in uh, in his management at the at the state level um, from that perspective. Obviously, the issues of drought, uh, record breaking wildfire seasons, these challenges, do they tend to strengthen his argument for staying in office or weaken it? That's a great question. If you talk to Republican supporters of the recall, the efforts that Governor Newsom has made to shut down uh, the state during the height of COVID peaks in California, aggressive is the word for it. He was out in front on masking mandates and, and vaccine mandates, even before CDC recommendations, before a lot of other states um, 
in-person education at public schools was was shut down for longer in California than in many other states. And Republicans say that this frustration uh, has really fueled both the signature gathering effort and voters who want to remove Newsom from office. However, the governor in recent weeks has really leaned into his record on COVID and said that he has saved lives with the restrictions that he put in place and has sounded the alarm that if a Larry Elder, the top polling Republican, were to be elected in this recall, Elder has promised to rescind COVID vaccine mandates and masking mandates on his first day in office. And Newsom says that that would be a mistake, that walking back those measures would put us back in the in the bad times of, of, of COVID surges. So, you know, the Republicans would say that this has helped their effort. And Democrats are now in the last final days of this campaign leaning into uh, Newsom's record on COVID. Libby Dankman is senior politics reporter at KPCC in Southern California. Thank you for joining us, Libby. Thanks, Melissa. All right, everyone. We appreciate you being with us this whole week and through today's show. And hey, we have a very special online event up on our Facebook page that we taped on Friday. This is part of the way our show is marking 20 years since the September 11th terrorist attacks. It's a great conversation with activist and founder of MuslimGirl.com, Amani Al-Qutaba, as well as journalist and author Mona El-Tahawi. We talked about the experiences of Muslim women in the U.S. over the past two decades, and it's up there for you whenever you want to watch it. This is not to be missed. Go to Facebook.com slash The Takeaway to check it out. Now, let me shout out the team that makes this show with me each and every week. Lead off props to David Gable, our executive assistant and all around mensch supreme. Milton Ruiz was our board op, making it all sound smooth. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer extraordinaire. And Jay Cowett is our control room hermit, who's done, I don't know, one or two small things this week. Jackie Martin is our rock star line producer, leading the control room each and every day. Big props to Shanta Covington and digital editor Zach Bynum. They really left it all on the field this week for the Facebook Live as well as the radio show. Katarina Barton and Meg Dalton are superstar producers who gave us a ton of the amazing voices and stories you heard throughout the week. And keeping it all on sketch, running the ship, steering the sound. That's acting senior producer Ethan Overman. And finally, our big boss, the man with a plan, the Lee Hill. He's our executive producer. Toast them all with your best wine. Not some weak stuff. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. See you next time.